0: verse 47 woe to you because you built tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them so you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did they killed the prophets and you build their tombs because of this god in his wisdom said i will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zachariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And then verse 52, I don't think it's up there, but I'll just read it. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourself have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Interesting, as we are thinking of communion and what's coming up next, the next two, three Sundays, Verse 53 says, When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. I explained... uh, Uh, Last Sunday, but I'll review a little bit of what the connection is. I'm in a series of Surprised by Grace in the book of Luke. And yet teaching about the Pharisees for these three Sundays. And what's the connection? Well, it seems that the strongest words of condemnation that Jesus expressed was for people who blocked His grace. He was so Definitive about this, and often the way he dealt with people out of grace was in conflict with the Pharisees. So in this uh, section, Luke chapter 11, uh, we have these many places where he says, Woe to the Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees. And uh, so what I did over the last three Sundays, I isolated uh, some summary characteristics of the Pharisees, and I gave them descriptive labels in each case examples of how grace was being resisted they were aiming at the wrong bullseye concerned about the outside preoccupied with you know the outside of the cup he says by using a way of metaphor but not concerned about the filth that was on the inside Uh, they were missing the main uh, very committed to details of their law like Tithing of the uh, vegetables. And yet he says they were missing and neglecting the important thing, which he specifies there in that verse is the love of God and justice. That would be love of neighbor and love of God. Uh, keeping up experience, appearances. We enjoyed uh, looking at that last week. Keeping up appearances. They were seeking seats of honor in the synagogue. They were concerned about their titles. They want to be sure that they were called by the names that had been given to them. Make sure you call your pastor reverend, or doctor, or pastor, or whatever is appropriate. I prefer Lloyd, actually. And I'm glad when you call me that. But Pastor's okay, too. But they were concerned about that, because they were concerned about outward appearances. And then we looked last week also at how they were making people jump through hoops. And you know, that's always true about legalism. When you add a bunch of regulations and rules, you need to be careful about that. Are we making it difficult for people? Is it a way of resisting God's grace? Well, they were doing that. They made it very difficult for the common people. And so this morning we're looking at that last characteristic the uh, of that characterizes these religious leaders, and I've called it shooting the messenger. It's an expression that is used in communication. You don't like what someone is saying? Well, disregard the message by writing off the source. What do you expect since it's coming from that person, you see? If we can reduce the credibility of the speaker, then we can more easily question the reliability of the message shooting the messenger how how many of you have heard the name uh, Jordan Peterson big in the news today Uh, he is not a politician but uh, uh, very much favoring traditional values and uh, the the one that caught a lot of attention was that uh, he said that he was not going to obey any law that required him to use different pronouns uh, for those uh, transgender uh, people. Uh, he wasn't going to call them just some silly, to him, silly pronoun, just because the law of the land said so, and that got a lot of attention. And uh, what happened was he became, he's become famous and rich, bestseller i picked up uh, his bestseller book uh, this last week uh, for uh, 12 rules for life an anecdote an antidote to chaos he calls it it's a bestseller and uh, become very very well known people are watching his Uta- uh, on youtube they're watching uh, his debate with people and so on and so forth but knowing human nature i am certain that there are people who are simply undermining what he says by shooting the messenger. Oh, it's coming from Jordan Peterson, therefore we don't have to take it seriously. Progressive-minded people feel they can minimize what he says because of who he is, shooting the messenger. In the Bible, a very clear graphic example is uh, King Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim of Judah. Jeremiah has a message from God for the people, he dictates it and his scribe Barak writes the words on a scroll Uh, they are read, those words are read to the people, the people become fearful and they're saying boy you know the king needs to hear these words and so that is all arranged the king is in his winter apartment cozy with fire in the fire pot and the scroll is being read to him And for every uh, three or four columns that's read, he takes his knife and he cuts it away and he throws it into the fire. And you see, in that context, the scroll is the messenger. God spoke to Jeremiah. He had the words recorded, so that's the message now from God. But Jeremiah does away with it. Burns the scroll. Significantly, the text tells us in verse 24, Jeremiah 36, the king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Shooting the messenger. Don't like what is being said? We'll kill the prophet, whatever. In this case, we'll burn up the scroll. Well, we have that uh, Jesus is saying that about the Pharisees in, these, in this chapter You go to verse 47, verse 48. Woe to you because you build the tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did, that they they killed the prophets and you build their tombs. See, um... It was a notable part of Jewish life to build tombs and to revere the graves of the great figures of the past. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus, however, points out something to them that this ironically symbolizes something that you are on side with your ancestors. They killed the prophets. You build and decorate their tombs. You bring to completion what they begun. Nice teamwork. Monumental tombs normally celebrate the life of the person. Jesus here is making a point and he is saying ironically, you celebrate their murder. Killing the messengers. And note who it was that they were killing here. Prophets. The word prophet is mentioned several times, apostles. And who are they? Well they're messengers. God's messengers. Don't like the message from God, no problem. We'll just shoot the messenger. Jesus is saying that's what the ancestors did. And that's you too. He's connecting them together. And then he says, you will be held accountable. Verse 50, 51. He says, therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that's, that's been shed since the beginning of the world and then he mentions the first martyr, Abel and then the last one recorded in the Old Testament, Zechariah it's like like a bookends here, he takes the first and the last and he's saying that uh, you guys are guilty along with your ancestors and you're going to be held accountable Uh, there's going to be judgment he's probably thinking especially of the coming destruction of Jerusalem but also in view might be overtones of the last judgment. When God's message is rejected, judgment comes, sooner or later. True of the individual, you reap what you've been sowing. True of the group, they rejected their Messiah and experienced horrendous judgment. Persecution want to talk about there's a bit of history here of persecution and then after that i want to talk about it in a different way that uh, they shoot the messenger but beginning with persecution and we have that so clear here i will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute it's taken place in so many different places throughout history they killed Jesus and even as we read here they're beginning to put the plot together even even in after he's been teaching this session we know from history that most perhaps all but John of the Apostles were martyred literally martyred why? Because they weren't nice people? No, but because they were Jesus' ambassadors, messengers. They didn't like what they stood for. They didn't like the side they were on. You know, the big, the, the main message, it seems, in the book of Acts in the early church was Caesar is not the CEO of this universe, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been raised to the dead. He is the king. And the... Landmark. The pivotal uh, response had to do with who do you give your allegiance to? That's still the gospel today. Is it to the Lord Jesus Christ or is it something else? It can be something as money, fame, power, or it can be a Caesar. Persecution has continued through the centuries. As uh, we were coming to the close of the last century, 1997, James Dobson, in the Focus on the Family Newsletter, had uh, documented something. This is what he said. More than an estimated 160,000 believers were martyred in '96. That was just the previous year. And countless others were subjected to unimaginable horrors. And the persecution appears to be escalating exponentially. He says that the shocking untold story of our time is that more Christians have died this century, that's the 20th century, simply for being Christian than in the first 19 centuries after the birth of Christ. They have been persecuted, they've been martyred before an unknowing, indifferent world and a largely silent Christian community. I suspect that the totals will be even larger in our 21st century. I don't have any numbers at my fingertips here. But it seems as I read in Faith, the two magazines that I read regularly, Faith Today and Christianity Today, there's always instances, or regularly I should say, instances of people being persecuted and even martyred in different places. All all Christian denominations. Hostility. It's not always literal persecution. Sometimes it's hostility. And there's a a colorful human interest example here that I give to you that happened a number of years ago now. But uh, there was a Jewish businessman by the name of Stan Tilchen. And uh, he wrote his own story in a book entitled Betrayed and uh, they were practicing Jews they were in uh, Brooklyn or New York uh, and uh, happy family good family wholesome family his daughter went to university and accepted Jesus as her Messiah well Stan and his wife Ethel were devastated so he decided the best way to respond to that was to study the Bible for himself and to, to prove that his daughter was wrong So he prepares uh, the first night, he loads up, he's got a lot of cigarettes and I suppose he's planning on spending an all-nighter if he needs to, to read the book of Matthew. And uh, as he reads Matthew, he's expecting to find hatred, a book of hatred. For you see, that is what he had experienced as a Jew from nominal Christianity. That says a lot about what's going on, doesn't it? But, you know, as a Jew there in New York, he would tend to think that the world around him is essentially Christian, right? And and a lot of persecution. One of my friends this uh, last Christmas, he told me that a lot of these uh, songs that we sing at Christmas that don't mention the word Jesus, uh, they were written by Jews because the Jewish people felt so isolated at Christmas time, you see? (laughs) in North America. So they decided to write some wonderful festive songs of their own, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and some of those songs. But the Jewish community had been experiencing that we don't really belong here. We don't fit in in terms of the the mass, the the majority. And so he expected to read in Matthew a book of hatred. Well, it was written by a Jew, it was written about a Jew, and it was directed especially to the Jews, and it was not a book of hatred. <laughs> and he keeps doing his research and studying, and uh, he becomes a Christian, and his, wi- his wife is doing the same thing. She also becomes a Christian. Shortly after, Ethel was shopping in one of the local discount stores. One of our former neighbors came up to her, and in a harsh and angry voice asked, is what I hear about you true? I don't know. What have you heard about me? That you and your whole family have become Jews for Jesus? Well, said Ethel, that's an organization on the West Coast. We don't belong to it, but we are Jews who belong that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you want to know why, I'll be happy to talk with you about it sometime. No, thank you, came the reply. Then she spit in Ethel's face. Hostility. And of course, that's just one story of what has been the pattern for many people. If it's not persecution, hostility. Hostility 2,000 years still over Jesus as the Messiah. God's truth is not perceived kindly, and often the messenger gets the hostility and of course it isn't only Christians but it's other religious groups too that get some of that hostility Jews as we mentioned in Friday's National Post Barbara Kay wrote about the federal bill M103 it's designed to protect Muslims from hatred she points out however that by the number of incidents anti-semitism ranks as Canada's most common form of hate crime. And it is rising in frequency. Yet, she says, even it is not so statistically significant to warrant the whole government approach to it. But then she adds this. Now, as far as I know, Barbara Kay is herself a Jew. But this is what she said. Indeed, among those testifying at the hearings the only witnesses who brought actual evidence to bear on the assertion that religious bias was systemic throughout Canadian institutions were Christians. Only Christians brought tangible evidence. She says representatives from Trinity Western University, the Christian Medical and Dental Society of Canada, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada all offered concrete examples of the state forcing or attempting to force counter-conscious beliefs and behaviors, most notably the practice of euthanasia. And she says, I am not being facetious when I suggest that Christians have a more evidence-based right than Muslims to feel they are victims of systemic institutional bias. That's in Canada. We're not talking persecution. Please don't use the word persecution for for anything like that because it, it's an insult to those who really are being persecuted where their lives are in danger. But there is hostility and in this case it's not even hostility as much as it is simply prejudice. Yesterday's National Post Charles Lewis writes, the idea of secularism itself seems to have shifted. Where once it meant that all parties, including faith groups, could participate in setting the public agenda, with no one group dominating the other, it now seems to mean that no religious participation at all. Except, except from those liberal denominations that support Abortion rights, euthanasia, and same-sex marriage. I'm reading from secular sources, or I'm reading from non-Christian sources. Not persecution, sometimes hostility, but often prejudice against us. Well, there was another way the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders rejected Jesus' message. And it is what I have chosen to call substitution. They had substituted their own rules and traditions for God's great commandments. They had their own stuff. Interpretation. Applications. All kinds of rules that became their authority for faith and practice. And so much of the conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees that we've been looking at in the next few weeks, that's really what's behind it. It's the conflict between their religious system with all the stuff that they had added and what Jesus knew and taught was the intent of the law. I mean, think of some of these uh, ones we've been covering. You wash the... You're worried about the washing of the hands? You should be concerned rather about what's on the inside. You see, the, the, the focus on the outside has substituted for the real intent of the law. Or are concerned about tithing their vegetables. And he says, that's fine. But you have neglected justice and the love of God. And so it was... They, they made it difficult for ordinary common people to really qualify as people who were really practicing Judaism well because they had all these rules and regulations that they couldn't keep up with i think of the example that uh, on our first or second sunday where uh, where this uh, sinful woman anointed jesus' feet and you see according simon was the host and uh, he He concluded that Jesus can't be a prophet because according to his system, according to the authority that comes from Simon's religious system, a sinful woman should not be touching Jesus, you see. Yeah. They were replacing, they were substituting God's intention with their own everything, all kinds of stuff. Well... In his book, Twelve Steps for the Recovering Pharisee, like me, John Fisher says, They established the content of the written Torah by determining 613 commandments and interpreting and supplementing them so that there would be no possibility of a Pharisee breaking a law by accident or ignorance. They had all of those details to make sure that they could stay on what they thought was staying on track. These many rules, supposedly the way to live according to God's laws, diverted the attention from the intent of God's commandments. I referred last Sunday to Mark chapter 7. Some, let's look at some of those words. Listen to the very words of, and I call it substitution, or perhaps even trading, trading the one for the other that Jesus used. He, he asked, you know, why don't, he was asked, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And just what Jesus needed to let them have it. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and then this their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God. In order to observe your own traditions. Substituting the one for the other. He gives a particular example, and then he goes on and he says, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Substituting, trading off God's commands in favor of their traditions. Scathing words that he spoke. But effective. And, if, and he's pointing to an effective way of avoiding God's call. Well, for us to ponder this not just as a point of interest, not just to be critical of the Pharisees, but the question is are there Christians, Pharisees? Do we have Pharisaical tendencies? And I would say, well, of course we do. There are things we have to guard against. Things I've been talking about. Concern about appearances, for example. More concern about appearances, perhaps, than what's going on in the heart. Or we can get so taken up with one law over here. You know, if you're you're a tither and you want to give exactly 10%, you can work it out to the decimal point and be so exact about that and yet fail to be generous. I'm going to share something that I think is kind of well known. Um, our daughter was a waitress in Winnipeg. And from what I heard there, waiters and waitresses don't think too highly of the church crowd on Sunday after church. I think you can guess why. Cheap tithers. Oh, I don't, I don't want those people. <laughs> you can look after, you can, look after, you can, you can have that shift. And probably some of those are tithing to the very decibel point. But are they stingy overall, you see? Pharisees among us, of course, we're tempted by some of those same things. But one way that I especially want you to consider today and take home with you to think about... One way is when our interpretations and doctrines become like ends in themselves. We can be so exact and so firm about our particular unique, of co- unique combination of doctrines that we forget that the purpose of doctrine is to live right. Orthopraxy, orthodoxy is for orthopraxy. And as Baptists, we are known as people of the book. Unfortunately, we are also known for something else. For separating over lesser distinctions. It's like our unique set of doctrines become more important than genuine, lasting fellowship with even those people who are basically on the same side. It's like we are into our doctrines, and that has become almost an authority rather than what the doctrines are for. Remember what Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by by your exact doctrines. Of course not. You know that. By the love you have for one another. Right there. Oh, we are to love the world, of course. But in that passage, it's the love we have for each other that impresses the world. Hmm. Yeah. So when we make our doctrines even, like an end in itself, somehow measuring people's spirituality by the exactness of their doctrine. And I'm saying that this could become a very relevant consideration right now for our church because we're having conversations with another group. And you can be sure their exact set isn't going to be exactly like ours. It could become very relevant. And one of our Baptist distinctives is freedom of interpretation, right? I think it's worded as soul liberty. That means that you have the freedom to read for yourself, to interpret for yourself. And that means that we're not going to see eye to eye on everything, which in turn means having fellowship with people who we differ with. How could it be otherwise? If you have all that freedom of interpretation, can you live with that? I think it's wonderful. I think I'd rather be with people who don't agree with me on everything. At least theoretically, I'd rather be instead of us being like cookies coming out of a cookie counter. But it becomes a matter of authority. What's our ultimate authority? Matthew chapter 21. The chief priests and the elders of the people ask Jesus, Who gave you the the authority to do these things? By what authority are you doing them? And he answers them by saying that I have a question on my own. If you will answer my question, then I will answer your question. And this was his question, the baptism of John. Was it from heaven? Or was it from men? Well, they discuss it among themselves. You know, they go into their little huddle and they figure maybe we better not answer his question here because if we say that it comes from, from men, then we will create a real stir among the people because the people, they believe that John, John's authority was from heaven. And if we say that it uh, must have been from heaven, <laughs> then uh, Jesus will say, uh, well, why then didn't you believe him? And so they said to Jesus, "Uh, we don't know the answer to that. And so Jesus says, well then neither will I answer your question. Why would I talk to you about authority when you're not willing to be under God's authority anyway? Their own rules, their man-made rules, their interpretation, their applications, their system of God's ways the way they saw God's ways was their authority and they rejected God's authority first by rejecting John they were rejecting Jesus they would soon crucify Jesus their system rather than God was their authority see when it's all said and done our teaching our way of doing church Our doctrines are but means to a greater end. And that greater end is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in giving our allegiance to him, becoming better people, better at loving God and loving one another. Remember what it was that Jesus said to them that they were neglecting in verse 42, concerned about the trivial details, but they were neglecting the love of God and justice. In other words, love for God and love for neighbor, but under, under the authority, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the part that's for us.